That's all you're going to remember is Sue living in joy, uh, which I'll remember that picture. That's good. Um, you know, it's interesting as Christ followers, we're, if you've, the longer you've been in the faith, the quicker you are to express your weakness. Um, I think the, the longer you have known Christ, the more willing you are to express, express weakness and inability and all of these things. And, and, I, and it's good. It's good that we do that. It's good to be real. It's good to be authentic. It's good to fight the temptation to stand on your own pride and stand on your own strength. And there is this necessity for us to be real and authentic with each other about our weaknesses. But what about strength? Where do we sustain strength from? Um, I was just thinking of very real scenarios, and I started asking myself these questions, because when I looked at these scenarios, and these are real scenarios of real people that I've walked with, that I've seen, and you, and you ask yourself, how did they walk through these moments? What fueled the disciples to stand strong in the face of persecution and martyrdom? What caused Paul to stand strong in the chains for the gospel? What sustains, even today, the supernatural strength that Christians around the world have displayed when asked to deny their faith or be beheaded? What causes a lone teenager to withstand jeers and being laughed at by those in his or her high school when they strive for sexual purity because Christ is central? What keeps a man from cutting corners at work even though he could benefit greatly if he did? What keeps a stay-at-home mom or dad sane as they balance exhaustion and caring for their children and managing a home and still maintaining relationship with their spouse? What causes someone wrestling and navigating the rocky waters of same-sex attraction to remain celibate as they continue to find out more and more about how complete they are in Christ? What causes a single person to rejoice in their singleness as a gift to glorify God and to trade the self-absorbed, I-want-it-all mentality with the all-for-Christ heartbeat? All of these real, all of these strength being displayed, but how? They're not perfect They don't succeed every time, but there is this longing and this desire in their hearts to bring glory to God. What causes that sustaining? And here's the thing. I'm convinced that the scripture doesn't teach that the sustaining strength is God says, if you behave, then I will give you strength. You see, the story of the scripture is God loves me and he is worth so much more to me than all this world can afford. It's not me pulling up my bootstraps, tying them up tight. It's not me willing it. It's not me going, meh, I'll do. It's none of those things. But the sustaining strength is given to us by understanding who God is and his promises. You and I will walk with strength because the joy of the Lord is our strength. There is no other source, but that's the biggest temptation we'll battle, is going to other sources. This morning, I'd love to look at three specific things. What is joy? Secondly, what does it actually do? Because there is a need for strength, and I don't know if some of you realize that. I don't know if some of you realize you're going to need strength. You might be like, oh, things are good, things are great. Well, well, we'll evaluate in just a second. And three, how does this joy show up? And I'd hope to convince you that if you have breath in your lungs and a beating heart, you have access to this joy. As long as you are alive, as long as you are breathing, 
you have access to the one who is our joy. The book of Nehemiah um, has been a book that Christians have looked to for a long time for leadership principles, team building, unity, repair, um, reconciliation. But if you know anything about the time period of Nehemiah, it was pretty chaotic and transitional for the nation of Israel. Um, the, the, the whole story of Scripture, and it's one of the things we try to communicate here at Highland, is there's this upper story going on all through Scripture. And we like to look at the lower story, which is kind of the human interaction, but we have to understand the upper story to even make sense of some of the lower story stuff. And with Nehemiah, what's going on here is it's a fulfillment of God's promises from the very beginning. You see, God initiates relationship. If you're having this desire to reach out to him, it's because he reached out to you. That's one of the most amazing things about God is he puts in us a desire to reach out to him. So if, if you have a desire to pursue him, you need to thank God that he reached out to you. And this is what we see in Scripture. He initiates relationship. He begins this whole process. And in the Old Testament, he specifically rescues the people of Israel out of Egypt. And he says, I'm going to show you grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. I'm going to rescue you out of slavery. I'm going to bring you into a new land. You're my people. I've chosen you. You are my people. Now, here's the thing. Don't be tempted to run after other things. Stay with me. Because if you do run after other things, you will find yourself physically and spiritually slaves again. He warns the people of Israel, don't go anywhere else, don't go anywhere else. And when they did, after multiple warnings, don't do it, come back to me, come back to me, God's promises were fulfilled. And typically other nations would come in and rule over them with iron fists. And Israel would live under the fist of another nation's king, another nation's religion, gods, all of these different things. And so what you see in the story of Nehemiah (coughs) is actually, um, in 1 Kings, God repeats this challenge to the people of Israel uh, through Solomon. And what happens with Solomon's life, you see the result of Nehemiah being uh, the guy who gets taken away. 1 Kings 11, verses 4 through 6. In Solomon's old age, they turned, he, they turned his heart to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord his God as his father, David, had been. Solomon worshipped Ashereth, the goddess of the, you can just read all those words, the detestable god of the Ammonites. In this way, Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He refused to follow the Lord completely as his father David had done. Repeated invitations to return to him, repeated rejections by the people of Israel. Eventually, the people landed and handed over to their sins in foreign nations. And this resulted in a kingdom split. Ten tribes went to the north, two tribes went to the south. And what's interesting about this, and this is kind of the the biblical story thing, and I want you to understand how God has placed his thumbprint across this story. The ten tribes who went north... What's interesting is Assyria comes in, captures them, and these ten tribes actually become uh, absorbed into the Assyrian culture and other cultures around to where, to the point where you're not really able to trace the roots of any of those ten tribes any longer. But what's so crazy about this is the two tribes, the tribe of Benjamin and Judah, if you look at all the twelve tribes of Israel, Benjamin and Judah remain intact in the southern kingdom. And about a hundred years later, these guys get carried off as well as captives. And under Babylonian and Mede and Persian rule, they live, it to, they're still intact. And what's so amazing, and this is just me going, God, you're so crazy good about promises and fulfillment. But the fact that we can still trace the tribes of Benjamin and Judah back from Jesus is just 
You know those, all those family lineages that you skip over when you're doing your Bible reading? That's important. The fact that we can trace Jesus all the way back and there is still evidence of these families being together is the fulfillment of the ultimate promise of him being a blessing to all the nations. Now, I know some of you are like, Jason, that's nerd speak. But it just makes me get more excited about God's fingerprint across all of this stuff. That the ten tribes, they dissolve, you can't trace it back. But the two tribes that are remaining, you can trace it back. And it's like, oh, God, you thought of everything. Because you're God and you do that kind of stuff. But what's amazing about this whole journey is after about 50 years of living under the rule, the, uh, the remaining two tribes of Benjamin and Judah are allowed to return to Israel. And as they return to Israel, they return in two waves. The first wave um, goes back, and what they see is the need for the temple to be rebuilt. And after major wars and outbreaks against the Samaritans, the Israelites actually rebuild this temple, which was prophesied would happen, and so they do. They rejoice. This second wave of people that come back to Israel, under the leadership of Ezra, Ezra sees that these people who have rebuilt this temple don't even know the God that they just built this temple for. Their lives don't reflect knowing this God. Their lives are completely absent of this understanding of this holy God who rescued them, who called them out of darkness, called them out of slavery. They don't know him. And Ezra's heart breaks for this. And so what we see is Nehemiah hearing about the wall around Israel being broken down. It makes him sad. It does. The Bible says it made him sad. Because the wall around the, the, the city recognized strength and this understanding of Israel's broken. Israel's weak. And so he comes back and instills this building plan and neighbor next to neighbor next to neighbor next to neighbor and they all build this wall back and they have this celebration. And Ezra, who's a contemporary of Nehemiah, stands up on this platform and he begins to read the word of the Lord. And apparently what happens as Ezra begins to read this word that these people have no clue about, they start to weep. They break down and just tears and they're crying and there's just like this, oh my gosh, we are dead. This holy God who rescued us, we're going to die. We've turned against him and we've run and we've done all these things. Head for the hills, we're all dead. I love the response and you can see it in Nehemiah chapter 8. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were interpreting for the people said to them, don't mourn or weep on such a day as this. For today is a sacred day before the Lord your God. For the people had all been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah continued, go and celebrate with a feast of rich foods and sweet drinks and share gifts of food with people who have nothing prepared. This is a sacred day before our Lord. Don't be dejected and sad for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites too quieted the people telling them, hush. I love that. Hush. Don't weep. I feel like Miss Sue right there. <clears throat> For this is a sacred day. So the people went away to eat and drink at a festive meal, to share gifts of food, and to celebrate with great joy because they had heard God's word and understood them. Now, this is a crazy picture. This is these people. What they should have known, they did not. Can you imagine that sight? Can you imagine being present of, of these people going, I, I fall short. This, this reading of this law is breaking my heart. I did not know this. I did not know that God was good. I did not know that he pursued us. I did not know any of these things. But then Ezra, Nehemiah, and the Levites apply what a lot of theologians call the balm, B-A-L-M, of the gospel. 
And just as there are wounds that we have and burns and hurts and you on the physical side and you take a balm and you put it on there and it brings relief and it brings soothing, Nehemiah and Ezra begin to encourage the people of return to him. This is the good news. He's ready to receive you. Come back to him. Be his people. And this is what we see with the gospel story just as much. It's not just about the Old Testament story, but it's about the invitation for us to understand our position in this very same story. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, Grief for sin is the porch of the house beautiful where the guests are full of the joy of the Lord. Listen to that. Read it again. It's not just beautiful poetry. Grief for sin is the porch of the house beautiful where the guests are full of the joy of the Lord. When you and I are broken over our sin, yet we understand how much God still loves and doesn't cast us aside, it causes us to rejoice. If in your sin you're like, God hates me and God is terrible, you do not understand the story. You're still running. You're still in control. You're still in charge. You're still calling the shots. When you hear that God, God detests sin, and your heart is to go, well, then I hate you too, God. You don't know the healing balm of the gospel. The healing balm provides that cool refreshment of understanding my sin is deep. And Christ paid the price for it. That is the healing balm of the gospel. This is why, and this is kind of a, an, a side note, why at Highland we are so specific about passing the baton of faith and leadership to the next generation. Because over and over in the Old Testament, you see the failure of the baton being passed. And I put it on the screen because I want you to see why we do Fight Club, why we do Branches, why we do Flintstones, why we do gel groups that are multi-generational, why we do this multi-generational thing. Because I'm serious and I believe this. What is believed by one generation will be assumed by the next generation, will be ignored by the next generation, will be rejected by the next generation. You tell me where we are. If the intentional passing of the faith of the believers is not done, this is the pattern over and over and over and over in Scripture. What's believed by one generation, if it's not taught or handed to the next generation, will be assumed. Oh, yeah, cool, I think I'm a Christian. That's great. If it's not intentionally passed from them to the next generation, it becomes just, ah, that was what my parents did. That's what my grandparents did. And then it becomes outright rejected. You tell me where we are. The understanding that the joy of the Lord is our strength. He rescued us while we were still sinners. He sees and knows everything about us in our sin, but loves us still, and he proved it by sending Christ to die on the cross for us. He invited us not to work or earn our salvation, but to simply believe that he is who he says he is, and that he's a God who is faithful to his promises. He works in disaster. He hears us in chaos. He is present in collapse. And even death, yes, the worst thing imaginable, cannot separate us from him. My past, my present, my future are held by Christ. This is joy that sustains. 
The psalmist, along with other scriptures, writers discuss this. That God does not hand out joy. Okay, I want you to understand, God doesn't hand out joy. The Christian belief and understanding is that He is our joy. So God's not standing up there divvying out joy. Oh, you need some joy? Here you go. Here's some joy. You want some joy? I'm going to hand you some. Here's 20 bucks worth of joy. I'm going to make it rain joy in here. He doesn't do that. He is our joy. Listen to the psalmist. Just go through the psalm. You have a concordance. You're all old enough and able to look in the back of your Bible for the word joy. I just want you to do that when you go home this week. Psalm 4-7. You have given me greater joy than those who have abundant harvests of grain and new wine. What if we were people who go, I don't have the fullest barns, but I have him. That's what he's saying. Psalm 9-2. I will be filled with joy because of you. I will sing praises to your name. Psalm 34, 5, those who look to him for help will be radiant with joy. No shadow of shame will darken their faces. Psalm 43, 4, there I will go to the altar of God, to God, the source of all my joy. God is not looking just to hand things out and make you joyful. He is the source of our joy. And because of the fall, because of Adam and Eve's propensity or longing for to be in control this idea of i want more i'm going to be it i've got the plan this is the clearest argument that we battle every day we believe there's something more that will give us more joy than god himself isn't it isn't that it almost every minute right every minute we struggle with the idea that god alone is our source of joy some of you in this room are thinking well if i had strength then I would have joy. But the Bible doesn't say the strength of the Lord is our joy, does it? It says the joy of the Lord is our strength. See, you and I think, if I had a full bank account, then I would have strength, then I could have joy. Or, man, if I could just find the perfect man or the perfect woman, then I would have strength, then I would have joy. This is the way our human brains work. If I only had fill-in-the-blank, then I'd have strength, then I'd have joy. And that's not biblical thinking. That's the way the world works. Now, in Leviticus, and this is, how, this is how about joy God really is. In Leviticus, he gives these instructions for what's called the, feast of, uh, the festival of the shelters. And this is an amazing picture of Christ. Okay, I just want you to understand, I don't have time to go into it, but I want you to just see how hard the, the, the Israelites are supposed to party at this point because of who God is. Okay, Leviticus 23. Remember that this seven-day festival to the Lord, the festival of shelters, begins on the 15th day of the appointed month. After you have harvested all the produce of the land... The first day and the eighth day of the festival will be days of complete rest. On the first day, gather branches from magnificent trees, palm fronds, boughs from leafy trees, and willows that grow by the streams. Then celebrate with joy the Lord your God for seven days. Did you hear that? Because they were going to celebrate the Lord for seven straight days, God said, on the day before you start celebrating, you're going to need to sleep. You're going to need to rest because for the next seven days, we are going to rejoice because of who I am and what I've done. Oh, and on the day after the party, you're going to need to sleep the whole day as well. That's how hard they party over the Lord. That's how hard they celebrated about how good God is and how much he loves us. 
You know, and I know some people, they, you know, uh, when you look out and people are like, I have joy down in my heart. <laughs> well, your heart and your face need to have a conversation. Because <laughs> it's the joy of the Lord. We rejoice because of what he's done. I love that the Lord set up festivals to celebrate his faithfulness. I love that. As they remembered all that God had done and his faithfulness to them, they were filled with joy. This wasn't a festival to celebrate rules and the ability to follow rules and my strength and me being good. It was about God remembering his faithfulness. There are definitely times I wonder if the church had seven-day parties celebrating the faithfulness of God, if that would leave a mark on a city. Elders, write that note down. We're going to talk about that. (laughs) Later on in the book of Nehemiah, you actually see them celebrating the wall being rebuilt and all these things, and it says that their shouts of joy could be heard nations over. God ultimately was marking his people saying that your joy is going to be a testimony to the other nations, even in the midst of your trials and struggles. That's amazing to me to even think that that would be an option for us. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, your joy shall be God's missionary. Just think about that for a second. Just grab a hold of the fact that your joy is God's missionary. I'm baffled by that. That the way I respond to the things that the world throws at me, the difficulties that I walk through, will speak louder than any apologetic argument I could come up with in the moment. Just chew on that for even a minute. And this is why the devil goes after our joy. See, my wife and I, and and anytime I get to teach people about superheroes, I love it. I love to teach about superheroes. And there are a group of superheroes called object-based superheroes. They have a whole catalog of them in DC and Marvel, okay? Object-based superheroes. I'm going to show you a picture of some object-based superpowers. Iron Man's got his armor. Green Lantern has his ring. Um, Batman has his belt. Without it, he's not a superhero. I don't care who you are. Don't argue with me about this, all right? (laughs) Recently, my wife and I have been watching The Arrow a lot, and he does not have any superpowers. But what's unique about this is the enemies of these superheroes, they go after the object. Because if they can go after the object, they render those superheroes useless. Villains have similar things. Y'all don't know about Kanjar Ro, do you? I want to show you Kanjar Ro. He's got this sweet gong. It's called the Gamma Gong, and it causes people to lose their minds. But if you take that gong away from him, he ain't got nothing. My daughter, I call her the little engine. She's got this, uh, this shirt on right here. It's Joy, and her source of strength is her nap. And uh, if she doesn't have a nap, she's not pulling these boys in their, uh, their thing. But that's what she does. When she's had her nap, she's got strength. When she hadn't had her nap, she collapses. Now, there's times when me and um, <clears throat> my wife talk about you know, how dirty it is for villains to go after. Like the arrow, he's got these loved ones. And in the first and second season, there's this guy who's going after his loved ones because he knows if he can take them out, 
he can take him out. And we're like, man, that's so dirty. Why would he do that? Just fight him straight up, man. Don't go after his loved ones, but fight him. This is how the enemy works. He goes after the joy. He goes after us in very specific ways so that we will be rendered useless. Because when there is no joy, there is no strength. Strength and joy are directly connected according to the scriptures. And if he can get the source, if he can get the object, there will be no strength. Now, um, with this, this whole thing, the joy of the Lord for you and I, and there are some of you I know that could probably respond in this way, Some of you might be able to say, for much of my life, I knew about God, but I did not know God. Some of you are so filled up in your brains with theology, facts, and doctrinal ideas and statements, and you're the most miserable people on the planet. It's amazing how that can happen. It is absolutely mind-boggling to know, I know people who are miserable, but yet they they know more about God than I could ever want to. But some of you could say that it changed when I entered into a by grace through faith relationship with God. The joy of the Lord is relationship with him and his son. No man can guess what it's like, nor can he assume what God has reserved for those who love him. Second thing is, but for some of us, what do I need this strength for? And I believe there are two areas in particular that we have to discuss as a church. I believe there are a lot of reasons we need strength, but I believe there are two right now that are killing the church. And the first is strength to stand against temptation. We are a people who are selfish people. And you may go, what do I need strength to stand against temptation? Because you're getting knocked out and you don't even know it. You are getting taken down, your legs are being taken out from underneath you, and you have no clue that you are caving to the things of the world rather than standing in the strength of the joy of the Lord. You know, the strength guards us against temptation. Temptation causes us to believe there's another source that will satisfy our deepest longings. Pornography, lust, sex outside of marriage, addictions, money, power, fame, worship of my kids and spouse... There are a lot of things that are desiring to take us out. And the joy of the Lord is our strength, guards against the enemy's fiery darts that would cause us to trust ourselves rather than the Lord. As we stand in the joy of the Lord, we're able to, with the shield of faith, do battle against the enemy. Secondly, so there's against temptation, but secondly, I believe what's killing the church is a desire to carry out our own mission rather than the mission of God. You and I are going to need the strength that only the Lord can provide to carry out His mission. He doesn't give people strength to build our own castles, to build our own desires, to build our own wants. He gives us strength so that it will sustain us through the trials, the struggles, the difficulties, the persecution, the heartache that comes with carrying out the mission of God, the reconciling of all men to God through Christ by His Spirit. This is what we were created to do. And we need His strength to do it. Give me a hundred people who understand that and I'll take that over a thousand people who are excited. 
Because an understanding of what it's going to take to carry out the mission of God is a strength that is not our own, but His. And I guess, practically, how, do we, how does this joy show up? Praise to God. Praising Him. Because what's the opposite of praising God? Comparing yourself to others, in my opinion, it is. I believe when the joy has been gone after, you will look around and compare yourself to everyone else and be like, oh, forget it. Oh, they've got so much. Look what they have. All of these different things, rather than praise to God being a result of all that he's done. Praising God. How often do you praise? Do you praise or do you compare? It's a self-evaluation there. Prayer versus complaining and gossip. How often do you pray? As a result of the joy of the Lord being our strength, do you pray or do you go, I'm going to complain and I'm going to gossip? Where is the joy? Sacrifice versus self-preservation. The people that I know that sacrifice the most are not the strongest, they're not the fastest, they're not the smartest, but boy, do they get the joy of the Lord. How willing are you to sacrifice, not as a result of what you want to do for God, but because of what God has done for you? This is a joy thermometer, barometer, whatever you want to do. And the normal expressions of joy in the day to day versus rage and fury and discontent. I'm going to keep it 100 with y'all, as my brother in law Jazz would say. Oftentimes, as uh, the day draws to an end, and it's time for bedtime at my house, I tend to forget all the Lord has done for me. I'm just being honest. I forget God's faithfulness in the midst of my four children going bananas at 7.30 at night. I forget God's faithfulness to me Because my kids decide it is time to turn their rooms and our house into Chuck E. Cheese. I forget. And so on my face and in my voice, fury and rage and anger and... ah! And we've done this thing since the new year where basically we all tell each other, okay, if you yell, five jumping jacks. And so my kids, when they yell at each other, I'm like, I heard you, five jumping jacks. And there will be times when I'm like, guys, get into bed! And Judel raises his hand. Daddy, you yelled. One, two, three, four, five. But see, here's the thing. And I've diagnosed what it is. It's the joy of Netflix is calling my name. It's the joy of the end of the day. My children are in bed and I'm ready to hit that couch and I'm ready to just sit. It's the joy of Monday night football calling my name. Kids, you're keeping me from the thing that brings me most joy and I'm curious and I'm raging and I'm... Ah! Good night, kids. You know, I, just keeping it 100. I am not perfect. But the joy expressed in my day to day, even at the end of the day, good indicator of what I'm putting my trust and my hope and my source of joy. All of that is my strength. And when Netflix is my source of joy, I turn into a jerk (sighs) because it's my kingdom I want. It's mine, 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 mine. 
So as we close and as the band comes, I want you to be aware that as long as you have life and are breathing, this joy is accessible. See, the amazing thing about this, if God alone is our source of joy, if He is the one who, His joy, then it's within reach to all. God can give it to you, He can give it to me, He can give it to anyone. If it depended on our good works, none of us would get it. If it depended on our not sinning, none of us would get it. But because it's Him, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the invitation. Now, as we conclude, please understand that joy has nothing to do with whether we're physically, emotionally, financially, or circumstantially strong. In fact, the times of our joy will be louder and most effective in our suffering. Eighteen times in the New Testament, joy and suffering are directly linked. Which makes me, as not, I'm not the best detective, which makes me think that something that marked the Christ followers of that day was their ability to sustain joy in the midst of severe suffering. And this is who we are called to be as well. Most of them rejoiced in their suffering. They knew that man could not destroy what God had done for them and in them. But there also came a point, and I know this may be the difficult one for most of us to swallow, but there came a point in the life of these believers that they actually thanked God for the suffering. And I know there are some of you in this room who cannot understand that right now because of what you're walking through. Maybe you're at a place where you can go, I can rejoice in God in this suffering, but I cannot thank Him for it yet. In James chapter 1, this is what he says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect, whole, and complete, needing nothing. Looking back on suffering and being able to go, God, you sustained me. You made me whole, not the things of this world. I walk through the fire experiencing your grace every step of the pain-filled way. We look back on those days knowing he sustained, and maybe someday, maybe not, we can thank him for the trial, counting it joy, filled, and precious to us while we're here on earth. Being joyful in suffering And then being able to be joyful for the suffering because you know what it caused in your heart. And it was a time when you were able to press in to who God is. Now, as we respond this morning, why don't you guys stand with me? I'd love for you to just be able to stand and consider. I do not want you to go home and take this, all right, joy of the Lord, and put it on my theological shelf. The meditation upon and the contemplation of the faithfulness of God is to be something we stand in every moment of every day. I don't want you to go home and go, I've heard about joy, that'll get me through this week. It is the joy of the Lord that is our strength. How often do you need strength? For some of us, we have to consider it minute by minute. So the joy of the Lord is to be contemplated minute by minute. By minute, 
This is not a theological checkmark. This is not a doctrinal upgrade. This is a a way of life for the Christ follower. So as we consider in worship this morning, if you're at a place where you need prayer, I'd love for some of the elders to make themselves available. I just want to make this a place where you can repent for putting your trust and your hopes and your looking for joy in the things of this world. Maybe you're at a place where you're transitioning from thanking God in the trial to thanking God for the trial, and you just want somebody to pray with you. We want to make this available. We want to make this a space where you know you can be prayed for and cared for. And as the Spirit moves, just be obedient to Him. Lord, thank You for loving us. Thank You for wanting us. Thank You for sustaining us by Your joy. It's in Your name we pray all these things.